Jag är här nu på Jag såg ISL-kart för AI-sjukdom och gas och strad AI-stay. Jag vill ha jag såg några många ajar. Zero. Welcome to the 345th of the Cthulhu podcast. I'm Felbrick. Today we're starting off with the 16th part of Wilmot's History of the Zulu War, and then I'll run part 10 of Three John Silent Stories. So, let's head to that dark continent. In entering Alundi, six of the Dragoon Guards rode in front, followed by Natal native contingent men and one company of the 60th Regiment. Then two Dragoon Guards, between whom walked Ketchawayo, with another Dragoon close behind him. Natal native contingent, eight men of Lonsdale's horse, and another company of the 60th Regiment followed. Sir Garnet Wallersley did not go out to meet the last of the Zulu kings, as the prisoner had rejected and despised every overture. He was treated not as a captured king, but as a mere fugitive from law and order. After a very short delay, the party again started, ostensibly for Peter Maritzburg via Rourke's Drift. But the march had not proceeded long, when an express messenger galloped up from the general with an order to proceed with all speed to Fort Durnford. When Ketchawayo arrived at Kwamamazanga, he said, This is not the way to the Tugela, and knew at once that he would have to cross the sea. He became melancholy and abstracted. During the entire journey, he retained the quiet dignity for which he is remarkable. At Port Durnford, a surf boat was ready, into which the king and his party were placed and taken to the steamer Natal, which was waiting. The sea was rough, and Ketchawayo had to crawl on his hands and knees on board, while one of his people, overcome by the terrors of the ocean, lay on his back in the surf boat and made signs that he desired to be killed. The gunboat Forrester escorted the Natal to Simon's Bay, and thence to Table Bay where Ketchawayo and his wives were landed and were lodged in the castle of Cape Town. Thus ended in a prison on the metropolis of Cape Colony, the career of the last of the Zulu kings and the autonomy of the nation. The greatest and most powerful ruler of South Africa had defied Great Britain, and in his defeat fell once and forever all the hopes of domination so long cherished by the native tribes of southern Africa. In spite of his large proportions, Ketchawayo is a handsome man, of much dignity and aspect. His limbs are large but symmetrical, and a very broad chest, large and lustrous eyes, intelligent and not unamiable countenance. With plenty of food and perfect safety, he lost all inclination to be shot. Speaking of the war, he took all the responsibility for the Battle of Kambula, but declared that Alundi was fought against his wish, and in consequence of the determination of his young men once more to try the arbitration of the sword. Now that his power is broken, he laughs to scorn the idea of any more fighting being possible against British rule. A great meeting was called by the White Inconsi, Sir Garnet, for the 1st of September, the same day six years ago on which Ketchawayo was crowned. It was fitting that the anniversary of the day of the promises never fulfilled should also be the day of atonement. Two hundred Zulus were seated a few paces from Sir Garnet's tent, and although naturally great talkers, the silence of death prevailed. Ranged in rows four deep, with the principal chiefs in front, 
They listened with perfect attention to the words which decided the fate of their country and of themselves. Two of the king's brothers and the prime minister of the king were present. At half-past four, Sir Garnet Wallersley left his tent, and as he walked towards the assembly, was greeted with uplifted hands and shouts of Inkosi. Leaning upon the hilt of his sword, he calmly gazed for a few moments upon the representatives of the conquered nation assembled to hear its doom. Mr. Shepston interpreted into Zulu sentence by sentence as Sir Garnet Wallersley spoke as follows. Quote, it is six years ago on this very day, the 1st of September, that Quechua was crowned king of the Zulus, and only yesterday you yourselves have seen him carried away a prisoner, never to return again to Zululand. On the occasion of his coronation, Quechua made certain promises regarding laws to be observed in the future, which promises he never fulfilled and his country is now about to be divided into different chieftainships, and I hope his fate will be a warning to all of the chiefs not to follow in his footsteps, but to act according to the commands and terms given by the English Queen, who will most certainly punish any who do not do so. The interests and welfare of South African races are very dear to the Queen, and she is anxious that the natives of this country should thrive, as those in Natal have done up to the present time. She will be lenient to faults arising from ignorance, but although inclined, as I have said, to deal leniently with ignorance when it causes them to commit faults, those who persistently go contrary to the good government and peace will assuredly be punished as Quechua has been. As they are aware, she lives far away, but her power is very great, and she is so quite able to, and will, punish those who take life or make wars contrary to her orders. Quechua took the lives of his people for trivial offences, without giving them a chance of defending themselves, or allowing them a fair trial. This must cease. In future, trivial offences will be punishable by fines. Quechua kept on foot a large and powerful army, and did not allow his men to marry without his permission. In future, the young men will be allowed to marry when and whom they like, provided always they have sufficient for the support of a wife and the consent of the girl's parents. Disobedience of this law is to be punishable by a fine inflicted by the headman of the kraal. As Zululand is almost entirely surrounded by country under the Queen of England's rule, and not threatened in any way, there is no need of a larger army. And in future, no guns or ammunition will be allowed to be imported or to be in the hands of any Zulu. Nor will any stores be permitted to be landed on the Zulu coast, in case, under the guise of merchandise, arms should be brought into the country. The young men are to be encouraged to labour, and are to be allowed to come and leave when they like, for only by work can they become rich and prosperous. Quechua encouraged witchcraft, and that is known as smelling out. That I look to the chiefs to put down, and an end to such ridiculous and foolish practices arrived at. Quechua, by this practice of witchcraft, caused many lives to be taken, and neither life nor property was safe. And each chief must clearly understand, before he signs his name to this treaty, that none of his people must be taken without a fair trial before the chief being granted and the accused being allowed to call his witnesses. 
In what I have said, there is nothing new, though the young men may have forgotten. But these laws and customs held good before Shaka's ancient laws and usages introduced what is known as the military system. I intend leaving an English officer here as a resident to be the eyes and ears of England, to watch over the people, to see the laws observed, and that the chiefs rule with justice and equity. I am aware there are still a considerable number of rifles and guns of ours, as well as cattle scattered about the country, and those chiefs who wish to stand well with the English Queen will lose no time in bringing them in and delivering them up to the British resident. As they are well aware, by their own rules of war and conquest, Zululand now belongs to the Queen of England. She has, however, already enough land in Africa. And so she says, through me as her representative, appointed certain chiefs to rule over the districts which I shall presently name. The chiefs elected must remember that this is an act of grace, and that what I am now doing in partitioning the country to various chiefs is only what Quechuaio has himself done in former times. They are well aware of our laws, religion, and customs, and are very different to theirs, and the Queen has no wish to force ours upon them. As regards the laws and customs they are used to be ruled by, they are to be those good and ancient ones in use before Shaka's time. But life and property is to be protected and no life should be forfeited without a fair trial. As regards to religion, there is no wish to force ours upon them, and missionary enterprise will not be encouraged contrary to the wish of the chief and the people he proposes to reside amongst. The British government is very anxious to prevent white people settling in the country, and no sale, transfer, or alienation of land will be permitted or recognised. I consider this a very important point, as in many instances land has been said by white people to have been purchased by them from Zulus, and given rise to very serious complications. If, therefore, missionaries do come, and wish to reside amongst the people, all that can be permitted them to hold in land must be a small patch for their house and garden, but none whatever must be alienated from the Zulu people, to whom it really belongs." Some of those I have intended to make chiefs, I am sorry to see, are not here today. But some who are here today will now sign a document, the purport of which I have now told to you all, and a duplicate of the treaty will be given to each chief to keep, and a similar one retained by me. The boundaries of the various chieftainships will be told them, and will be clearly defined hereafter by officers sent round for that purpose. End quote. The first division, or coast column, under General Creelock, had not been opposed by the Zulus in the field. It established a series of fortified posts along the south coast of Zululand, opened a new base of supplies at Port Durnford, from which to feed a force operating against Ulundi, destroyed the military kraal of Emengueni, and the king's old military kraal of Ordini, besides clearing the coast district. By the 6th of July, all the great Zulu chiefs with their people, from the Tagela River to St. Lucia Bay, had given in their submission. It was the coast column, under Pearson, which had gained the Battle of Idiazani, and had gallantly held Ikoi for three months, and it was the coast column, more than any other, which had suffered from disease. Among General Creelock's valedictory remarks are the following. 
Quote, July 17, 1879. In notifying to the army in South Africa that Brigadier General Wood, V.C., C.B., and Lieutenant Colonel Buller are about to leave Zululand for England, Sir Garnet Wallisley desires to place on record his high appreciation of the services they have rendered, and that their military abilities and untiring energy have materially tended to bring the war to an end. The success which has attended the operations of the Flying Column is largely due to General Wood's genius for war, to the admirable system which he has established in his command, and to the zeal and energy with which his ably conceived plans have been carried out by Colonel Buller. End quote. Brigadier General Wood's Orders quote, The Brigadier General proposes, weather permitting, to leave for Peter Maritzburg tomorrow. In saying goodbye to the soldiers of all ranks, he wishes to express his warm gratitude for the support he has invariably received. The Brigadier General has gained the commendation of his superiors for the successful operations of the Flying Column. He feels that the credit he has so obtained has been gained by the courage and untiring devotion to duty of his fellow soldiers, and he will never forget his comrades of the Flying Column. End quote. It is right to quote the following orders respecting two distinguished officers of the war. Quote, the troops and naval brigade forming the 1st Division must be content with the conviction that their gallantry in the earlier part of this war has probably diminished the opposition of the Zulus in this country. You must be content with the honest conviction that your hard work and energy under very great difficulties and with your ranks thinned day by day with sickness and fever has successfully carried out the task set you by Lord Chelmsford to perform. And thanks to the valuable assistance and cooperation of Commodore Richards and the Naval Brigade, you have established the landing place opened at Port Durmford, which will enable further operations towards the capital to be carried out with facility, should they become necessary. Soldiers and sailors of the 1st Division, I thank you all for the good conduct, your hard works, and sympathise with you in the loss of so many comrades whose lives have been sacrificed to this climate so deadly to man and beast. We have all had great difficulties to overcome. I wish you all a hearty goodbye. I wish you success and prosperity wherever your duty to Her Majesty may lead you. End quote. It would be uninteresting to go into details with respect to the movements of the columns under Colonels Villiers and Baker Russell. Mahabolin and the Magalusin chiefs surrendered. Manyon Yoba asked terms of the commanding officer at Lundberg, and the various scattered embers left after the Great War conflagration were soon extinguished in the north. In September, Zululand was most thoroughly conquered. On the 1st of September, John Dunn, Umgena, Us Ilbilo, Umset Suba, Somkelu, and Gonzi signed the terms upon which they accepted chieftainship. Oham and others were proclaimed at a later date. The principal undertakings and conditions were that the chiefs should respect the boundaries assigned, abolish the military system, allow all men to marry and work as they will, prohibit importation of arms, take no life without fair trial, discontinue witchcraft, surrender fugitive criminals from British territory, make no war without the sanction of government, prevent sale or alienation of land, arbitration to be appealed to in case of disputes with British subjects. The succession of chieftainships 
to be dependent on approval of our government. The following is an exact summary of the terms and conditions signed in duplicate by all the newly appointed chiefs in Zululand at Alundi, September the 1st, 1879. The prelude and ending are verbatim. Terms and conditions summarised. I recognise the victory of British arms over the Zulu nation and the full right and title of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, Queen of England and Empress of India, to deal as she may think fit with the Zulu chiefs and the people, and with the Zulu country. And I agree hereby, signify my agreement, to accept from General Sir Garnet Joseph Wallesley, GCMG and KCB, as the representative of Her Majesty Queen Victoria, the chieftainship of a territory of Zululand, to be known hereafter as blank, subject to the following terms and conditions and limitations. Terms, conditions and limitations laid down by General Sir Garnet Wallesley, GC, MG, KCB, and assented to by me, as the terms and conditions and limitations subject to which I agree to accept the chieftainship of the aforesaid territory. 1. To observe and respect whatever boundaries shall be assigned to my territory by the British government, through the resident of the division in which his territory is situated. 2. Not to permit the existence of the Zulu military system, or the existence of any military system or organisation whatsoever within my territory. To proclaim and make it a rule that all men shall be allowed to marry when they choose, and as they choose according to the good and ancient customs of his people, known and followed in the days preceding the establishment by Shaka of the military system, and to allow and encourage all men living within his territory to go and to come freely for peaceful purposes, and to work in Natal or in the Transvaal or elsewhere for themselves or for hire. 3. Not to import or allow to be imported into his territory by any person for any object whatsoever, firearms or other goods of any description, and ammunition from any port, inland or sea coast and to confiscate all such goods or arms, etc., as they come in, fining the owners or possessors of them with heavy fine, or such other punishment as may be allowed. 4. Not to allow life to be taken on any pretense without trial before the Council of Chiefsmen, allowing fair and impartial examination of witnesses in the chief's presence, and further, not to permit of witchcraft or witch doctors or smelling out. 5. To surrender all fugitives demanded by British government flying from the laws, and to prevent their coming into Zululand, and if in, to exert himself and his people to catch them. 6. Not to make war on any other chief without the sanction of the British government through the resident of the district. 7. The succession to chieftainship to be decided by ancient laws and customs, and nominations of successors to be submitted for approval of government. 8. Not to sell or alienate the land. 9. To permit all people now in the district to remain upon recognition of his power, and any wishing to leave to be allowed to do so. 10. In all cases of dispute in which British subjects are concerned, to appeal and decide by decision of British resident, and in other cases not to punish until approved of by resident. 11. In all cases not included in the above or in any doubt or uncertainty, to govern and decide in accordance with ancient laws. These terms and conditions and limitations 
I engage and I hereby solemnly pledge my faith to abide by and respect in letter or in spirit without qualification or reserve. Signed, Atalundi, on the 1st day of September, 1879. Chief makes his mark. General commanding Her Majesty's Forces in South Africa and High Commissioner for South Eastern Africa. Signed by John Shepstone as witness of the correct interpretation by him and thorough knowledge of the contents of the document the Chief has signed. On the 12th of September, Major General Clifford was able to notify that Colonels Villiers and Russell's columns were in course of being broken up, after they had thoroughly patrolled the Makalusi district and found all quiet. Owen had returned to his own territory, accompanied by Wheelwright, who was appointed to act as resident in Zululand. Mongodala had been driven from his caves and his cattle captured, while his brother had surrendered at Lundberg. Two companies of the 24th Regiment, ordered to encamp at Isalawanda, removed the last vestiges of the camp, buried any bodies remaining above ground, and erected cairns of stones over the graves of the troops who fell there. More than 5,000 guns had been taken, or surrendered, by Zulus. Sir Garnet Wallersley did his work thoroughly. Troops were dispatched against Sakakani, and Saganet himself proceeded to the Transvaal in order to subdue discontent amongst the inhabitants and establish a settled system of government. It is not necessary to follow him there. With the conclusion of the Zulu War, this book must terminate. As regards the political adjustment of affairs in Zululand, the directions of the home government were no doubt implicitly obeyed. The country was made self-supporting in a military point of view, and the chiefs with their tribes were so disposed as to form a barrier against hostile aggression. John Dunn, who was a Christian renegade living as a Zulu in polygamic life, but whose influence was supreme throughout the country, was placed as chief over the southeastern of Zululand. One of his first steps was the prohibition of all missionaries in the country, in which he holds sway. Over Syrio's country, near the border, Extending to the foot of the Drakenberg, the chief Halabi was appointed, about whose tried fidelity and loyalty there can be no question. Oham occupies the region between the Pongolo and the Black Ulumvosi. Menyami, the late king's prime minister, is established near him, and it is to be hoped will not hatch plots for the establishment of Oham on the throne of his brother. Zulu land for the Zulus has been the motto of this arrangement but hopeless heathenism has been riveted as chains upon the people. Missionary enterprise is discouraged and even forbidden, while all the evils of tribal rule are virtually permitted. It has been said, with some fancy but great exactitude, that the new dispensation realises the description of the country given by Tennyson in Loxley Hoare, quote, Never comes the trader, never floats a European flag, slides the bird o'er lustrous woodland, swings the trailer from the crag. There, methinks, would be enjoyment more than this march of mind. The passions cramped no longer shall have scope and breathing space. End quote. Savage women shall be taken to rear dusky races. Polygamy receives approval. Missionaries are forbidden. And, strange to say, all this is really done in consequence of the efforts of the Exeter Hall zealots, who have denounced Sir Bartle Freer and the colonists from the beginning, lauded the heathens and strenuously objected to any assumption of their territory. The toleration of heathenism is both a blunder and a crime. 
which if not stopped in time must result in a disastrous consequence. And now, of course, it's time for some silence. It was, I think, on the fifth day, though in this detail his story sometimes varied, that he made a definite discovery which increased his alarm and brought him up to a rather sharp climax. Before that, he had already noticed that a change was going forward and certain subtle transformations being brought about in his character, which modified several of his minor habits, and he had affected to ignore them. Here, however, was something he could no longer ignore, and it startled him. At the best of times, he was never very positive, always negative, rather, compliant and acquiescent. Yet, when the necessity arose... He was capable of reasonably vigorous action and could take a strongish decision. The discovery he now made that brought him up with such a sharp turn was that this power had positively dwindled to nothing. He found it impossible to make up his mind. For on this fifth day he realised that he had stayed long enough in town and that for reasons he could only vaguely define to himself it was wiser and safer that he should leave and he found that he could not leave. This is difficult to describe in words, and it was more by gesture and expression of his face that he conveyed to Dr. Silence the state of impotence he had reached. All this spying and watching, he said, had, as it were, spun a net about his feet so that he was trapped and powerless to escape. He felt like a fly that had blundered into the intricacies of a great web. He was caught, imprisoned, and could not get away. It was a distressing sensation. A numbness had crept over his will till it had become almost incapable of decision. The mere thought of vigorous action, action towards escape, began to terrify him. All the currents of his life had turned inwards upon himself, striving to bring to the surface something that lay buried almost beyond reach, determined to force his recognition of something that he had long forgotten, forgotten years upon years, centuries almost ago. It seemed as though a window deep within his being would presently open and then reveal an entirely new world, yet somehow a world that was not unfamiliar. Beyond that, again, he fancied a great curtain hung, and when that too rolled up, he would see still further into this region, and at last understand something of the secret life of these extraordinary people. Is this why they wait and watch? he asked himself, with rather a shaking heart, for the time when I shall join them, or refuse to join them. Does the decision rest with me after all, and not with them? And it was at this point that the sinister character of the adventure first really declared itself, and he became genuinely alarmed. The stability of his rather fluid little personality was at stake, he felt and something in his heart turned coward. Why otherwise should he have taken to walking stealthily, silently, making as little sound as possible, forever looking behind him? Why else should he have moved almost on tiptoe about the passages of the practically deserted inn? And when he was abroad, I found himself deliberately taking advantage of what cover presented itself. And why, if he was not afraid should the wisdom of staying indoors after sundown have suddenly occurred to him as eminently desirable? Why indeed? 
And when John Silence gently pressed him for an explanation of these things, he admitted apologetically that he had none to give. It was simply that I feared something might happen to me, unless I kept a sharp lookout. I felt afraid. It was instinctive, was all he could say. I got the impression that the whole town was after me, wanted me for something, and that if it got me, I should lose myself, or at least the self that I knew, in some unfamiliar state of consciousness. But I'm not a psychologist, you know, he added meekly, and I cannot define it better than that. It was while lounging in the courtyard, half an hour before the evening meal, that Vezin made this discovery, and he at once went upstairs to his quiet room at the end of the winding passage to think it over alone. In the yard it was empty enough, true, but there was always the possibility that the big woman whom he dreaded would come out of some door with a pretense of knitting to sit and watch him. This had happened several times, and he could not endure the sight of her. He still remembered his original fancy, bizarre though it was, that she would spring upon him the moment his back was turned and land with one single crushing leap upon his neck. Of course, it was nonsense, but then it haunted him, and once an idea begins to do that it ceases to be nonsense. It has clothed itself in reality. He went upstairs accordingly. It was dusk and the oil lamps had not been yet lit in the passages. He stumbled over the uneven surface of the ancient flooring, passing the dim outlines of doors along the corridor. Doors that he had never once seen opened. Rooms that seemed never occupied. He moved as his habit was now, stealthily and on tiptoe. Halfway down the last passage to his own chamber, there was a sharp turn, and it was just here, while groping round the walls with outstretched hands, that his fingers touched something that was not wall, something that moved. It was soft and warm in texture, indescribably fragrant, and about the height of his shoulder, and he immediately thought of a furry, sweet-smelling kitten. The next minute he knew it was something quite different. Instead of investigating, however, his nerves must have been too overwrought for that. He said he shrank back as closely as possible against the wall on the other side. The thing, whatever it was, slipped past him with a sound of rustling and, retreating with light footsteps down the passage behind him, was gone. A breath of warm, scented air was wafted to his nostrils. Vezin caught his breath for an instant and paused stock still, half leaning against the wall, and then almost ran down the remaining distance and entered his room with a rush, locking the door hurriedly behind him. Yet it was not fear that made him run. It was excitement, pleasurable excitement. His nerves were tingling and a delicious glow made itself felt all over his body. In a flash, it came to him that this was just what he had felt twenty-five years ago as a boy, when he was in love for the first time. Warm currents of life ran all over him and mounted to his brain in a whirl of soft delight. His mood was suddenly become tender, melting, loving. The room was quite dark and he collapsed upon the sofa by the window wondering what had happened to him and what it all meant. But the only thing he understood clearly in that instant was that something in him had swiftly, magically changed. He no longer wished to leave, or to argue with himself about leaving. The encounter in the passageway had changed all that. 
The strange perfume of it still hung about him, bemusing his heart and mind. For he knew that it was a girl who had passed him, a girl's face that his fingers had brushed in the darkness, and he felt in some extraordinary way as though he had been actually kissed by her, kissed full upon the lips. Trembling, he sat upon the sofa by the window and struggled to collect his thoughts. He was utterly unable to understand how the mere passing of a girl in the darkness of a narrow passageway could communicate so electric a thrill to his whole being that he still shook with the sweetness of it. Yet there it was. And he found it as useless to deny as to attempt analysis. Some ancient fire had entered his veins and now ran coursing through his blood and that he was forty-five instead of twenty did not matter one little jot. Out of all the inner turmoil and confusion emerged one salient fact, that the mere atmosphere, the merest casual touch of this girl, unseen, unknown in the darkness, had been sufficient to stir dormant fires in the centre of his heart, and rouse his whole being from a state of feeble sluggishness to one of tearing and tumultuous excitement. After a time, however, the number of Vezin's years began to assert their cumulative power. He grew calmer, and when a knock came at length upon his door and he heard the waiter's voice suggesting that dinner was nearly over, he pulled himself together and made slowly his way downstairs into the dining room. Everyone looked up as he entered, for he was very late, but he took his customary seat in the far corner and began to eat. The trepidation was still in his nerves, but the fact that he had passed through the courtyard and hall without catching sight of a petticoat served to calm him a little. He ate so fast that he had almost caught up with the current stage of the table when a slight commotion in the room drew his attention. His chair was so placed that the door and the greater portion of the long salaire manager were behind him, yet it was not necessary to turn round to know that the same person he had passed in the dark passage had now come into the room. He felt the presence long before he heard or saw anyone. Then he became aware that the old men, the only other guests, were rising one by one in their places and exchanging greetings with someone who had passed among them from table to table. And when at length he turned with his heart beating furiously to ascertain for himself, he saw the form of a young girl, lithe and slim, moving down the centre of the room and making straight for his own table in the corner. She moved wonderfully, with sinuous grace, like a young panther, and her approach filled him with such delicious bewilderment that he was utterly unable to tell at first what her face was like, or discover what it was about her whole presentiment of the creature that filled him anew with trepidation and with delight. Ah, mademoiselle, Retour, he heard the old waiter murmur at his side, and he was just able to take in that she was the daughter of the proprietess when she was upon him, and he heard her voice. She was addressing him. Something of red lips he saw, and laughing white teeth, and stray wisps of fine dark hair about the temples. But all the rest was a dream in which his own emotion rose like a thick cloud before his eyes, and prevented him seeing accurately or knowing exactly what he did. He was aware that she greeted him with a charming little bow, that her beautiful large eyes looked searchingly into his own, that the perfume he had noticed in the dark passage again assailed his nostrils, and that she was bending a little towards him, 
and leaning with one hand on the table at his side. She was quite close to him. That was the chief thing he knew, explaining that she had been asking after the comfort of her mother's guests, and now was introducing herself to the latest arrival, himself. Monsieur has already been here a few days, he heard the waiter say, and then her own voice, sweet as singing, replied, Ah, but Monsieur is not going to leave us just yet, I hope. My mother is too old to look after the comfort of our guests properly, but now I'm here, I will remedy all that. She laughed deliciously. Monsieur shall be well looked after. Vezin, struggling with his emotion and desire to be polite, half rose to acknowledge the pretty speech and to stammer some sort of reply. But as he did so, his hand by chance touched her own that was resting upon the table, and a shock that was for all the world like a shock of electricity passed from her skin into his body. His soul wavered and shook deep within him. He caught her eyes fixed upon his own with a look of most curious intent, and the next moment he knew that he had sat down wordless again on his chair, and that the girl was already halfway across the room, and that he was trying to eat his salad with a dessert spoon and a knife. Longing for her return, and yet dreading it, he gulped down the remainder of his dinner, and then went at once to his bedroom to be alone with his swords. This time the passages were lighted, and he suffered no exciting contretemps. Yet the winding corridor was dim with shadows, and the last portion from the bend of the walls onwards seemed longer than he had ever known it. It ran downhill, like a pathway on a mountainside, and as he tiptoed softly down it, he felt that, by rights, it ought to have led him clean out of the house and into the heart of a great forest. The world was singing with him. Strange fancies filled his brain, and once in the room, with the door securely locked, he did not light the candles, but sat by the open window, thinking long, long thoughts that came unbidden in troops to his mind. This part of the story he told to Dr. Silence without special coaxing, it is true, yet with much stammering embarrassment. He could not in the least understand, he said, how the girl had managed to affect him so profoundly, and even before he had set eyes upon her. For her mere proximity in the darkness had been sufficient to set him on fire. He knew nothing of enchantments, and for years had been a stranger to anything approaching tender relations with any member of the opposite sex, for he was encased in shyness, and realised his overwhelming defects only too well. Yet this bewitching woman, this young creature, came to him deliberately. Her manner was unmistakable, and she sought him out on every possible occasion. Chaste and sweet she was undoubtedly, yet frankly inviting, and she won him utterly with the first glance of her shining eyes, even if she had not already done so in the dark merely by the magic of her invisible presence. You felt she was altogether wholesome and good, queried the doctor. You had no reaction of any sort, for instance, of alarm. Vezin looked up sharply with one of his inimitable little apologetic smiles. It was some time before he replied. The mere memory of the adventure had suffused his shy face with blushes, and his brown eyes sought the floor again before he answered. I don't think I can quite say that, 
he explained presently. I acknowledged certain qualms sitting up in my room afterwards. A conviction grew upon me that there was something about her. How shall I express it? Well, something unholy? It was not impurity in any sense, physical or mental, that I mean. But something quite indefinable that gave me a vague sensation of, well, the creeps. She drew me and at the same time repelled me more than, than... He hesitated, blushing furiously, and unable to finish the sentence. Nothing like it has ever come to me before or since, he concluded with lame confusion. I suppose it was, as you suggested just now, something of an enchantment. At any rate, it was strong enough to make me feel that I would stay in that awful little haunted town for years if, if only I could see her every day, hear her voice, watch her wonderful movements, and sometimes, perhaps, touch her hand. Can you explain to me what you felt was the source of her power? John Silence asked, looking purposefully anywhere but at the narrator. I am surprised that you should ask me such a question, answered Vezin with the nearest approach to dignity he could manage. I think no man can describe to another, convincingly, wherein lies the magic of the woman who ensnares him. I certainly cannot. I can only say this slip of a girl bewitched me, and the mere knowledge that she was living and sleeping in the same house filled me with an extraordinary sense of delight. But there's one thing I can tell you, he went on earnestly, his eyes aglow. Namely, that she seemed to sum up and synthesize in herself all the strange hidden forces that operated so mysteriously in the town and in its inhabitants. She had the silken movements of the panther, going smoothly, silently, to and fro, and the same indirect oblique methods as the townsfolk, screening, like them, secret purposes of her own, purposes that, I was sure, had me for their objective. She kept me to my terror and delight, ceaselessly under observation, yet so carelessly, so consummately, that another man, less sensitive, if I may say so, he made a deprecating gesture, or less prepared by what had gone before, would never have noticed it at all. She was always still, always reposeful, yet she seemed to be everywhere at once, so that I could never escape her great eyes, in the corners of the rooms, in the passages, calmly looking at me through the windows or in the busiest parts of the public streets. Their intimacy, it seems, grew very rapidly after this first encounter, which had so violently disturbed the little man's equilibrium. He was naturally very prim, and prim folk live mostly in a small world that anything violently unusual may shake them clean out of it, and they therefore instinctively distrust originality but Vezin began to forget his primness after a while. The girl was always modestly behaved, and her mother's representative she naturally had to do with the guests in the hotel. It was not out of the way that a spirit of camaraderie should spring up. Besides, she was young. She was charmingly pretty. She was French, and she obviously liked him. At the same time, there was something indescribable a certain indefinable atmosphere of other places, other times, that made him try hard to remain on his guard, and sometimes made him catch his breath with a sudden start. It was all rather like a delirious dream, half delight, half dread, 
and he confided in a whisper to Dr. Silence, and more than once he hardly knew what he was doing or saying, as though he were driven forward by impulses he scarcely recognised as his own. And that's all for today. Except to remind you of my Patreon account where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast as separate MP3s, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a classic sci-fi novel called Plague Ship. I've just finished Nightmare Tales by Blavatsky and the final volume of Charles Oman's History of the Peninsula War. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrigg. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Until next time.